0: Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak Podcast, produced here in Sydney, Australia. My name's Matt Wakeling, thank you so much for joining me today. Now today I'll speak to another Sydney-sider, Chris Brooks, fantastic guitar player, He's released a couple of amazing instrumental albums, is a brilliant teacher, uh, who's released some great products and, and uh, also gives one-on-one tuition. Great player, great player, he's got um, a cool story and it was great to catch up with Chris. We caught up in between thunderstorms. So, uh, during the interview, you might hear the rain a little bit from, uh, that leaked through my microphone. Not literally. All right. There's been some great feedback from our interview with Perry Ormsby of Ormsby Guitars. Even today, as I record this, I bumped into an old friend of mine, Owen Roberts, and his lovely family at the shops of all places. And, uh... We, uh, we blocked the aisle and we caught up a little bit. He's a great guitar player and a guitar teacher, also from Sydney, and uh, we went to university together back in the day. Anyway, Owen was saying, yeah, you know, enjoyed the Ormsby interview, and he in fact owns an Ormsby GTR, so we talked a bit about that as well. So those Ormsby guitars are everywhere, uh, not only in Australia, but around the world. So great to see uh, an Aussie builder taking on the world. Of course, you can hear that interview in all of our past interviews uh, if you look us up on iTunes or Stitcher or guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com. All right, on to our interview of the day with Chris Brooks. Now, for the interview, I'm going to play a part of the title track of Chris's latest album, The Axis of All Things, to give you a taste of his playing. And then the interview kicks off as Chris answers my often first question, tell me about your start on guitar.
1: I had a couple of moments, actually, breakthrough moments. Um, my parents bought me a guitar when I was eight years old, and, and I took lessons for about six months. And um, that seems to be the threshold for people who aren't really that interested in it. And um, I put it down for a few years. And then when uh, there were two sort of moments that, that made me pick it up again. And one was hearing Brett Garshead play with uh, John Farnham. And then around that same time, uh, hearing John Noram play with Europe, when the when the solo uh, when I first heard the solo in the Final Countdown, yes, I uh, just looked at it, and went, oh, I want to do that. And and <laughs> funny thing is, it's funny thing is because people accuse me of playing fast all the time. When I heard John Noram play fast, I thought, man, if I could do that, I would do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so self fulfilling prophecy, I guess.
0: That's great. That's so good oh man we um we spoke to michael dolce who i believe your mates with as well
1: i have met michael yeah yeah Great cool player.
0: and he um he he quotes um he mentions seeing uh brett Garsard on uh on until with john farnham as well being a big deal catching him on the tv
1: yeah absolutely there was, there was there's so many i'm like i talked to like some of the other guys like uh like jeremy barnes as well and yeah when you talk to um a lot of aussie guitarists of of a similar vintage that, that concert that was broadcast on, on national TV live, I think it was yeah, um, yeah. back in like early, early 87 or something. Yep. For, for everybody, for all of us in, in Australia, that was like our Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock moment. <laughs> you know, there were so many guitar players that they kind of just, you know, or, or budding guitar players that just jumped in because of that concert, you know?
0: Oh, man. Absolutely. I remember it. And I think it was Simulcast, which for. Yep.
1: So you, you turn on the radio nice and loud and watch it on TV at the same time.
0: Exactly. And it was all before high def TV. So yep. it's not as if we had stereo TVs or anything then, but... Um, exactly. Yeah, you could hear it on the FM. Yes. That's um, that's massive. That's um, that's the moment. Yeah, I think we were all watching the same thing.
1: Absolutely. And it's so influential because, you know, I mean, there were some great guitar players. You know, Tommy Emmanuel was already doing stuff mm-hmm. and, and whatever. But as far as like electric guitar and... And seeing someone like Brett do the, the, you know, the tapping thing and the hybrid picking and the, and the dive bombs and the, the pinch harmonics and it it was all there and it was like just so explosive and it was top shelf and it was coming out of Australia, you know what I mean? So yeah, that, yeah. for a lot of us, us Aussie guitar players, it was just like, wow, this can actually be done at this level at home, you know, it doesn't have to be just an American thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's cool. That is very cool. So um, I think we'll get on to some more Brett Garson as we move along and talk about your albums, which oh, is super sure. cool. But um, so, okay, so late 80s, you you hear John Norum, you, you hear Brett Garson. What what happens then?
1: Then I actually pulled out the acoustic guitar and sort of went, this doesn't sound anything like those guys. <laughs> so I, 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 I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but I, I started making fake guitars out of just wood in the shed and then i started trying to put strings on them thinking that somehow it would sound better than my acoustic guitar when it was exactly the same thing but uh (laughs) you know enough of that and my parents kind of got the message that okay he wants something that looks like an electric guitar so they went and bought you know a little guitar and amp pack and and from there i had lessons and and uh you know a couple of years after that i sort of got more into the shred style of thing and, and it kind of took off from there.
0: Wow, cool. Do you remember that first electric, what it was?
1: It, the brand was Legend, so it was just a Strat copy and and the only reason I picked it is because it looked like what John Noram was playing in that video, yeah, it was like a white Strat. That's right. And, and I just I just looked at, they looked around the they said, look around the shop and which one do you want to try? And I just pointed to a white Strat and went, yep, that's that's what I want to try and that was, the I think, the only one I tried out and then we bought it, so...
0: Wow, that's cool. That's great.
1: I've still got the body for that guitar somewhere. Okay. I've got to to find that and put a neck on it, I think, just for nostalgia's sake.
0: Yeah, nice, man. That's cool. So you're doing lessons. Was there a breakthrough in your playing when you realized, you know, when you get to the next level, I don't know, just from, say, playing cowboy chords to actually putting a solo together and feeling like you're making some progress?
1: it's, It's funny you mention that because, like, the when when they put me back in lessons after getting the electric um I had this teacher that just wanted to show me like Roy Orbison songs and and, and Elvis <laughs> songs and so I was playing all this old 60s stuff yeah and then you know and I learned a pentatonic scale but I had no idea how that actually related to anything like what I was listening to I thought it was just on a different planet and then I had a substitute guitar teacher his name was Chris as well and I had him Twice, and, and I don't know his last name, and I've never seen him again. But the dude changed my life. Uh-huh. He showed me a th- he showed me a three note per string major scale, taught me what upstrokes were, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't have to be playing everything with downstrokes. Yeah, yeah. And then he gave me a ca- he gave me a cassette that had two Ingvae Malmsteen albums on oh. it. And f- from that, life changing, another life changing moment. So sometimes it's just those little moments yeah, yeah. that just so much is, is born of that that one that one situation.
0: Man, that's cool. Very cool. And what did you do with that? What what happened with the scene and the, the three notes and stuff?
1: Uh, so once I learned those those scale patterns, it, it's just like, okay, so you know, if I start doing that on every fret, I'll know how to sort of play up and down the neck. And yeah, if I yeah. connect the patterns up and I started so a lot of it was self discovery after after that. So a lot okay. of the time I would I would pick something up from a, a, a teacher or a player and just be one thing and then I'd go off and, and Turn that into a month's worth of homework, and then somebody else would show me something else, and and then the instructional videos, like the, the REH and the hot Licks videos, yeah. yep. you know, became hot. And I had a job, so I could start buying them, and and you know, so a lot of those guys were my teachers in a way as well. Once I finished those initial, um, you know, Roy Orbison lessons.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. What um what videos were you watching? What what were some of the instructional ones?
1: Uh, so Vinnie Moore, um, yep, yep. Vinnie Moore's, um, the, you know, two Hot leaks videos, um, the Paul Gilbert one, uh, yeah, um, yep. Joey, Joey, Joey Tafoya, uh, Key Marcello, Alan Holdsworth. I had no idea what Alan Holdsworth was saying, but just to see what was possible was amazing. Yeah, wow. um, Rich, Richie Cotson's Rock Chops, I got tons of oh, yeah. um, material out of that as well. Like all my legato stuff, you know, in one way or another sort of comes out of studying that video. Okay,
0: cool. That's great. Yeah, I remember, I definitely remember some of those. I like the Paul Gilbert one. That's when he'd like take a break and do some magic tricks on the guitar or something.
1: Yep, that's it. I never worked on those. I just worked on the (laughs) licks.
0: Hey, you seem to be super disciplined, um, even at this stage of your career when when you've really put a lot of time in. Were were you like that all the way along? Could you just sit down and and pour the hours into the playing?
1: Yeah, once I sort of got to the end of high school, I became quite obsessed with, the amount of time I was putting in, and I know better that it's not necessarily the number of hours you put into it. But back then, it was all no social life. and My parents wanted to take me to some family thing. I'd just grumble my way through it until I could get home, slam the door, in, and then go home and get my five hours practice, and no one would see me until it was done. And yeah, you know, so um you know, and I guess I get that from my dad because my dad's been a career um, musician as well as a drummer, and. He's you know in his late seventies now, and he still practices drums four or five hours a day. Oh wow! You know? And it's it's crazy, you know. And he's always every time he talks to me, he's showing me a new stick grip that he's experimenting with, and I'm like, you know, you, you sort of think, well, wouldn't you have picked one by now? But no, it's just it's just the the evolution of the technique, you know, just just goes on as long as you, you know. And I guess I get that naturally, but also seeing it, I, I know that you know. That that's how i want to be as well like i still want to be figuring out how to build a better mousetrap or reinvent mm-hmm. the wheel in 20 30 years time you know?
0: yeah cool that's awesome is your dad still is he gigging or does he do uh, he too much plays, he plays
1: plays um in you know in a church band that's about his um you know extent of his uh, playing commitments these days okay. but most of it is just the study of it for the love of it you know like uh yeah wow i think he, i think he's 65th birthday my brother and I bought him double kick pedals and a mic port, <laughs> my instructional video. And, you know, obviously that's, that's not something, that's not something a senior citizen normally listens to, but then he started doing double kick and then he started listening to Thomas Lang. And, you know, so, you know, I still find inspiration in that, the fact that you can go out of your comfort zone and pick up new things and then go and work on that.
0: Cool. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and yeah, man, obviously passed down. So that's, that's very cool. When, when did you start teaching? That's a, become a big part of your career it
1: has yes especially the last few years i actually as soon as i knew that you could charge money to show somebody something (laughs) i was a guitar i was a guitar teacher so i'd say i probably had my first student when i was 15 or 16 and then uh when i when i was at the institute of music for a while i um that was sort of the only way i made money was to just have half a dozen students a week and uh that was my train fare money and my lunch money and uh so all, it's always been something I've had my finger on ever since I figured out that, you know, I was pretty good at showing somebody something.
0: Okay. Nice. So you mentioned the institute. Did you did you do the um contemporary course there?
1: I did. I did um and I studied with um I studied with some great players. Some of them I didn't even know how great they were until years after, you know. But uh I mean obviously people like uh Dieter Kleeman I knew straight away that, that okay. he was yep. awesome. Yep. And Carl Orr and um you know old um, Isaac's is you know long gone but um, you know phenomenal players and, and, and teachers as well. Um, so it was it was a golden time but I mean as you probably hear from most people that study it at institutes or GIT or MIT or anything like that, mm-hmm. it, a lot of it is the, the inspiration that you get from from you sitting in practice rooms with other players and picking their brains and, and it's just the, like a cultural influence as well as just the educational side of it
0: yeah for sure yeah and it's often what you make of it as well you know you can get all this great information but until you um you know put it into practice and trying to make the stuff work it's you know you that's can, it i you mean I, the I, I, I would i would
1: i would even say that the curriculum at that time and this is in the early 90s yeah. wasn't fantastic but uh-huh. i'd still do it again just to just to meet those other players and, and you know You know, there's about three or four players with this kind of little shred club that we were just like the shredders that hung out with each other. That's great. I was the picker, and I was a picker, and there was another dude who was like a sweeper, and another dude who was all tapping. And between the (laughs) between the 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 three or four of us, we had we have had everything covered.
0: (laughs) Nice, (laughs) that's cool. Did you were you playing in bands at this stage?
1: Yeah, I was playing in just some uh, you know like pub bands half covers like 50 50 covers kind of things nothing that was really going anywhere because at that time it was just it was kicking into you know half my luck that the, the time I come of age and I'm finally old enough to play in pubs and yeah. then grunge is the thing sure. that, that comes <laughs> in. So so for a long time, it just wasn't cool to be me. I mean, it's still not that cool, but then <laughs> it was really not cool.
0: I think it's pretty cool to be you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But um, yeah, I know what you mean. Yes. So yeah, no one wants the three octave arpeggios over a Nirvana tune.
1: no. I mean, no one even wanted anyone to look up from their shoes for a while. There, it was That's just. True. Um, yeah. I used to say it was um, you had to be self-loathing, but uh, but not enough to stay home.
0: Okay, just the right amount.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: man, I I love that stuff too. I admit, but um, but yeah, it was a big shift in the guitar landscape. Absolutely.
1: Well, yeah. It, it's imagine. It's it's almost like. Uh, I mean, not that that information is wasted. But it would almost be like coming to the end of of a degree, um, studying for a job that didn't exist anymore. Yeah, sure. And you found out that, that and you found out the day after you graduated.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Man, but you kept it going. When um, when did you record the Master Plan?
1: So I wrote, um, I started, didn't even know what it was going to turn into. Whether it was just going to be a really good demo or or an album or what. But I started sort of jotting down ideas for that even in the late 90s okay. um, but I actually, I actually started recording it I think in 2000 or 2001 and then I put it out in 2002 much a solo album because you know I didn't know any musicians that could play what I was writing it was very I was almost writing it as if I wanted people of Virgil Donati or Mike Portnoy caliber to be able to play and of course you know I'm living on a five acre property you know way out of Sydney and there's just (laughs) no one that can do that so I programmed all the drums and I played bass and and programmed all the keyboards and and did all the guitars and a lot of the time I didn't even know what I was going to play on the guitar until I fired up the amp and wanted to lay down a guitar part. So sometimes when you hear a melody on that album, you're actually hearing like a minute after I came up with it. So really? it's, wow. it's it's pretty fresh in that regard. And then uh, I really tried to do a lot of improv in the solos as well, just so it didn't sound too kind of contrived.
0: Yeah, cool, cool man. It sounds great. And there's um, I'm hearing some prog kind of influences. There's tracks like um, Axiom or Blue Sky Odyssey when um, yeah got some nice sections in seven. Some tempo shifts.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It, it was fun to do because I was I was kind of um, I liked Dream Theater and I liked um, some other bands that were doing um, progressive elements. But you know, then I also liked like the Shrapnel albums and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. And I didn't really know how to reconcile those because sometimes on guitar albums the instruments are quite boring or they're just they're just a vehicle for for some you know wailing over the top. So sure. it took me a while to reconcile how to kind of do both um but i think hearing different projects like uh like john petrucci had this program project called uh, liquid tension experiment with mike portnoy um for instance so it was cool to hear albums like that that were just all instrumental but still you know everyone gets a chance to shine i really wanted to incorporate that into the the thing so there's lots of time shifts um you know metric modulation and um just anything i could do uh, you know to kind of break out of um you know, maybe sounding like a Vinnie Moore album or yeah, a Joseph Gianni sure. album. Not, yep. not that I didn't love those albums, but mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to duplicate it.
0: You know. Sure, yeah. I actually remember that um, Petrucci album was, um, I think, was Tony Levin the bass player or Billy Sheen or they did one each, one album each? Uh,
1: it was supposed to be Billy Sheen. There was various lineups talked about at one stage, but it ended up being Tony Levin and uh, and Jordan Rudess who later ended up. Oh, in, okay. uh,
0: yeah, right, cool. I like those albums because they did feel a little bit looser to me, anyway, a little bit looser than perhaps Dream Theater, but still a lot of Absolutely. precision yep. and um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of drive. But yeah, some, somehow a little bit looser and and vibe-ier. Yeah,
1: and I, I haven't even listened to those albums for a long time, but they, they they just made an impression at that time. It was like a sort of a snapshot in time. A lot of that was coming out into what ended up on the Master Plan.
0: Uh huh. Cool. And what were you? Um, what gear were you running at that stage?
1: I was playing uh, uh, an Ibanez, I had two Ibanez guitars, um, actually uh, the reason, this is funny, I, the reason I found out about John Petrucci was because uh, somebody loaned me a John Petrucci Ibanez and I went, who's John Petrucci? So I actually found out about, I liked the guitar before I liked John Petrucci, so <laughs> I, I, I ended up buying the, um, the guitar and then checking out his playing and thinking, wow, this is actually, this is my kind of stuff. So, That's cool. Um, so I was using that using that and I had a, uh, uh, an Ibanez RG550 as well and using uh, MESA dual rectifier uh, head and box.
0: solo album comes up, but when, um, with your teaching, I'm jumping back to your teaching a little bit, um, but you started producing sure. some really excellent teaching resources, I guess on top of your individual tuition and and the clinics you were doing. Um, yep. Do you want to talk about some of those? Because they're so beautifully produced. Thank
1: you. I what, I what I've been aiming to do for a long time, and there's other guys doing this in the marketplace and they're very good at it, um, but I guess what I what I find is, because people know me for a certain thing, whether that's you know accurate or not, um, a lot of people come to me f- to learn particular skills. And I just find in certain areas that I'm repeating the same lesson over and over again. And, um, mm-hmm. and I just got to a point where I thought, you know what, if I could record this hour, not that it only takes an hour, but if I could record this lesson and sell it to people over and over again, it kind of, not only do I reach more people, but I can spend more time Looking at other areas that I can do the same thing with and create a sort of a you know a whole course of of stuff, and that's kind of the plan. that has been a few years in the making now, but a lot more of that's going to be rolled out um, this year with just uh, various courses, and then hopefully eventually that will turn into a subscription-based website where people can just uh, have access to all of it for a you know for a monthly fee. Cool,
0: oh, that's that's great, man. That's great. So you've got the the three. On your website at the moment which look great is the there's the pentatonic picking one um yep. which looks great you've developed three ways of picking can you explain those a little bit yeah there's there's, there's three kinds of picking normally people
1: uh refer to you know they think of alternate picking then and what alternate picking is is just yep. down up and keep doing that uh economy picking where you sort of you know you accommodate uh, sweeping into string changes that have odd numbers of notes and then um then there's a a third system that i've dubbed the compound system and um people like eric johnson are known for that in their pentatonic playing where um at certain points um you know string changes will be alternate and then in other points they will be swept um usually to do with the number of evens and odd numbers of notes per string so i sort of wrote three sections based on um all of them because i like to be able to do all of them i'm not kind of a this is my way and the only way kind of, of thing sure. so uh, so that was kind of a uh, you know laying down the groundwork for the, the the picking styles of each one and then hopefully eventually this year I'll get to a follow up which will just be more licks in, in each um, in each
0: vein okay cool yeah man it sounded great and looked really cool and I liked how you were mixing up like two note per string stuff um, which is maybe more the Eric Johnson approach with like three note per string pentatonics yep. which always sounds really cool
1: yeah, the the um, key Marcello, who was the other guitar player in Europe, used to play yeah. uh, patterns that would stay in one position, but you'd have three notes and then only two notes on that string, and then three from the next. So you're constantly borrowing between two and three notes per oh, string okay. yep. in order to stay in the position. So I really liked the way that those licks kind of just sound way different to what you would just be able to achieve with um two notes per string.
0: Yeah, cool, nice. And you've just released a new course called the Ingway. Is that how yep, I pronounce did it? That.
1: Yep, I did that uh, kind of a, uh, a pun on the guy's name, Absolutely. Uh, in question, obviously, and um, that one was really, um, uh, you know, uh, a labor of love for me. It took a, I, I sort of had the idea for that a few years back, but um, I really wanted to finish that one off and, and talk about his picking style because once again, Ingve uh, has a very compound, you know, combination of, of elements in his picking as well. It's not just uh, alternate picking or economy picking. Um, so it was a really interesting area of study, so I really wanted to bring that out to people, and a lot more people are talking about that because of cracking the code and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it was it was it was a good time to finish it off and get it out there while there was um, more interest in uh, in what EngV is doing these days. Because it was kind of there's a period there, especially late '90s, early 2000s, where it just wasn't that cool to to be into EngV, unfortunately. But um, sure. now it's cool again.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Man, and- I hope. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's always room for Inve. I think.
1: I think. Well, he's such a groundbreaking player. I mean, I think he fell out of it fell out of favour with a lot of people stylistically because just you know the rest of the world moved on in some areas, and mm-hmm. he's quite, you know, um, you know, dedicated to his own thing. So, but I, I think everything comes comes around again.
0: Yeah. How would you discover some of that stuff? Um, say, if we just focus on Inve for a moment, how do you how did you break through and and Really dig into his technique when you're, I guess, mostly dealing with with audio recordings.
1: Yeah, the audio recordings were weird because um, I obviously you can't see what's doing, what's going on. But I would, I would hear certain things, and like I would hear picking runs that that I was sure finished on a downstroke just because of the strength of the of the last note. But yet, yeah, if I was alternating it a hundred percent, I would come up with an upstroke on the end of that run, and I'd go, no, nah, it's just just doesn't sound the same so so a lot of these things were questions that went on for years and, and sometimes answers and little breakthroughs along the way so um, it wasn't until you know the, maybe the mid 90s when he started doing some instructional videos uh, you know in Japan and um, the I had an NTSC um, you know uh, VHS player and, and I could slow that down and so I did a lot of slowing down and, and things like that and just okay. looking for just looking for things that that uh reoccurred because um you know his playing is very there's like four or five elements to it and everything is born of those elements and it's like you know to use troy's terminology once you crack that code you kind of just see how it all actually fits into it rather than um differentiates from it
0: okay that's awesome man. and that's a lot of dedication just digging into it so did you find it was very um I guess i guess what you're saying that, that some of these ideas are very small and simple but until you know exactly what he's doing with it there's um a bit of a roadblock.
1: yeah yeah and that's it because what happens is you try to apply somebody else's logic to it you know yeah. you try to go well Paul gilbert would just pick this alternate yeah you know, and but playing if you took Inve lines and play them pure alternate picking it sounds different like Actually Paul Gilbert's first few albums with Racer X were very much alternate picked invey kind of lines and that's why they have their own flavour to it. So once mm-hmm. you once you sort of realise, okay, the way it goes up a scale is different to the way it goes down a scale, and if you're mixing and matching that system in a sequence, you end up with something pretty crazy and and I just found it a really interesting area of study. So it made me better to actually understand that rather than just chalk it up to personality or quirks or whatever to actually yeah. go there's something here I really want to understand because, you know, I'm better off. I'm a better player for having made that pack. Actually, all the packs, I think. Every time I get to the end of a pack, I go, I'm actually better at that thing now. So I'm glad I do it, you know.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. When, when I hear you play, I don't I don't say this guy sounds like how, if When you study one player so intensely, I mean, albeit for one project that you've done, you've done lots of different projects, of course. Um, yep. But how does that how does it influence your day-to-day playing? Uh, that's a
1: really good question I there was about a a year where I couldn't I had trouble playing the way I played before because I was kind of like I felt like a method actor I wanted I wanted <laughs> to stay in character to get the pack done so yeah. if I suddenly went back to alternate picking and and stuff like that I had to really think about it for a second and um, now I'm you know I'm these days I'm better at switching between all of them. Um, uh, yeah, for a while, then, when I was making for about three or four months, particularly when I was making the pack, I only wanted to play that that thing. Uh, so even if I was playing something that was a different player, I would still try to work out how could I adapt that to to Inve's style of you know picking. So which is interesting because that's where my next course is going to take me. Okay. How would I take that that sort of technique set and play everybody else's stuff with it? So it it actually turned out to be a good thing as well.
0: Yeah, cool. Excellent. Your um your latest solo album is The Axis of All Things, um, yep. which is fantastic, man. The production on that is excellent. Did you, is that Thank you. another self-produced album?
1: Um. Well, the way I did it is uh, I demoed all the songs, and I, uh, I don't think I'm ever going to demo songs again because I just fell in <laughs> love with a lot of the demos. Yes. I've got magic demo syndrome big time yeah. with that album. Um, but what I did is I went and uh, I laid the, I got the drummer and I laid had a real drummer that time, and mm-hmm. we laid the drums down uh, in a home studio. Then I took the the you know the, the stems from those, went home and recorded all the bass and, and drums and keyboards, and then took it all back to that same studio for for mixing. And then uh, Lord Tim from the band Lord mm-hmm. um, actually did the mastering oh, um, cool. for that. So I had I, ha- I had help to make it sound a lot better than my first album.
0: Sure, man. Not the first album sounded bad, but the the latest one, the the production is. Um, a step along I guess is.
1: Probably- thank you yeah yeah I definitely wanted that I didn't want to make the same thing I mean it took me a really took me a really long time to get to making another album it was like a 7 or 8 year break between albums so I definitely didn't want to make it sound like nothing had changed
0: sure The um man the tones are awesome were you, were you using a Kemper by then I know you're a, a Kemper guy these uh, um, days I was, uh,
1: no I only started using a Kemper maybe a couple of years ago so um, the access of all things is like I think it's like nearly five years old now, and uh, okay. I was using a combination of amps. I had uh, still had the Mesa Boogie, and I used that on some of the heavier tracks, and then on some of the chimier sort of tracks, I had a Sir Badger, which is kind of a plexi-sounding 30-watt uh, oh, yeah, yep. uh, head. I, I didn't have that for very long, um, but but the tracks I used it on came out really good too.
0: Nice. Nice. There's um, yeah some cool tunes. Um, maybe we could talk about Transfiguration. I love the head on that. Yep. It's got a very Dorian flavor going on and a few things going on there.
1: Yeah, that was um, one of those songs that came out of just writing with uh, loops. And I don't mean like other people's loops. I mean, I would come up with a drum track uh, and then just lay down a bass line and then put some chords over the top. And, and a lot of the melodies just came from, you know, hitting record and, and noodling melodies over it and then sort of taking the, the structural brain approach of going where would you go now and then you know you kind of go okay big chorus time so i'd write the, the chorus and then mm-hmm. uh, and then go back to the little groove thing that from before so it's kind of half half spontaneous and half um, it's sort of structured spontaneity if you know what i mean once you once you get a really good idea then the other half of the brain goes in and goes rightio, i'm taking over this is what we're going to do next uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Very cool, very cool. The track Prelude um, you, you do bust out some neoclassical kind of chops it's it's almost got a fanfare kind of a feel to it.
1: Yeah, it's actually a classical piece um it's a prelude from TDM which is um, a lot of people recognize as the Eurovision theme okay. um, but it's actually yeah uh, um, it's a it's an older piece and uh, about 400 years old and uh, I, um, I wanted a bit of pomp at the beginning of that album just mm-hmm. something that sounded rather than just go straight into the title track i just wanted something that built it up a little bit so i did that little bluesy noodle thing at the beginning and yeah, then went yeah. into the, kind of the the pomp of the melody and then sort of crossfaded that into the the actual what i consider the first song in the album which is the title track
0: And the title track is massive, the axis of all things. It's great. How many guitars are you stacking on there in, in some of the parts?
1: So, at the most, there's only two rhythm guitars, just okay. a, a pan left and right. Yeah. And um, that was all done. Actually, most of the album was done with a PRS 24, custom 24. Okay. So, um, a lot of that's um, just layered, two layered rhythms, um, melodies, you know, and bits that I wouldn't be able to duplicate lead wise because things wouldn't match up or they were just a bit tricky, I'd probably only single track. Yep. Then other things, um well, I'd double track just, just for thickness. But never really more than two guitars doing the same thing. Okay,
0: cool. Yeah man, it sounds big. Sounds like fun. Um we mentioned Brett Garson up at the front of our conversation. Um yep. he guested on your album on the track In and Out of Dreams. Tell me about that.
1: Uh that was um one of those scary moments. Um you know brett is actually ever since the master plan came out um brett had heard about that i think i sent it to him and i think we stayed in touch bits and pieces um over the sort of 10 years and you know after that and um just the more i got to know him he just realized what a wonderful guy he is and and he's just very generous and he's the time that he gives whether it's to talk to you about guitar or you know in my case to actually provide a solo for the album so um when he um said he'd do something for me I wanted to write something that was kind of um you know that would suit his style but also stretch me a little bit as well so um I kind of wrote that section that you know where we play I think we play 16 bars each and then eight and then four and two it's kind of like a shrinking thing and, yeah, and cool. I knew I what I knew I wouldn't want to play after him so I took the step of actually, I actually took the step of laying down my trade-offs first uh, yeah. just so that I, I could, see. and then I thought uh, if he goes in a different direction to me after that, I'll, I'll, I'll go and lay some more stuff down. But actually what he did sounded really good bouncing off me, so I left it all the way it was. back and forth so most of the thing uh, yeah with that it just sent a mix down of the section and actually gave him where my solos were just so he knew what he was kind of bouncing off and then he just shoots back the wave file um, on its own and just pop it straight into the mix and yeah that that side of it was really
0: easy that's that's such an exciting um, use of technology these days you know you can you can get together and um, collaborate with people miles and miles away
1: and it's so funny because you know, the first exposure I had to working with musicians that weren't in the same place was after The Master Plan came out, um, Inver Malmsteen's um, singer, Mark Bowles, asked me to do a couple of tracks um, for an album he was doing. And in those days, we had the internet, uh-huh. so we could talk about the tracks, yeah. but the files were too big to send via email. So we were still FedExing um, <laughs> CDRs to each other, but then talking about it on the internet so that it was, and it was funny evolving to you know the point where the fight where we could actually send files you know like 10 tracks of whatever and it it would they'd be there in an hour you know
0: yeah wow tell me about that that must have been pretty amazing
1: it was cool um I don't actually remember how I first got in touch with Mark I think it was because I was running actually uh uh I was running actually you know when I wanted to first start getting into web design for promoting my own music Mm mhm I ran uh, an an Yngwie kind of a fan site but instead of talking about Yngwie I would try and interview a lot of the other band members and I think Mark might have been one of the people I approached okay, at that time cool. and so I ended up keeping in touch with him and then when I did um, an album uh, I went to Japan part for holiday but part um, kind of promotion just to hand out demos of the album to stores over there mm-hmm. And um, and he was there so I let him hear what I was doing and then After the album came out, he was like, "Hey, do you want to write a couple of songs for this solo album I'm doing?" And so it all just sort of came together after
0: that, you know, bit by bit. That's very cool. Very cool. Scary but cool. (laughs) Excellent. And um, what else is coming up for you? What's what's the rest of this year look like? You talked about putting together some more teaching packages. Anything else we should know about?
1: I think um, I think the the focus is going to be um, on the teaching packs because I just think um, I'd love to make another album, uh, you know, and I actually love to make a ton of albums. I you know it would be great, but um, I think just you know economically, the packs do so well that it's just um, as a entrepreneur, it's it makes a lot more sense to put most of my energy into that and keep that going and i actually really love to do that too yeah so it's kind of funny because kind of even though i love the lesson packs they're kind of like the day job now and the and making music will be the you know um kind of the the love project on the side the side hustle um but i'd love to do at least an ep this year Uh get something fresh out there and show people that i can still write music as well you know
0: yeah sure man i'd love to hear some new stuff that'd be that'd be awesome here's the thing though that the point is you you've you put together such a great um product and you're such a great teacher as well as a player which not everyone is a lot of a lot of players teach but they're not necessarily great teachers but but you you definitely do both fantastically so to create the demand and um to make that part of your yeah you know, your income as a professional musician that's brilliant
1: yeah i actually love doing it because uh, you know i love the analysis of it i love problem solving i love mm-hmm. finding out why this guy can do a pinch harmonic and the other guy can't or why this guy can sweep and why that guy can't and you know the thing about being a teacher is that you're not just speaking that one language of music you've got to speak 50 you've got to speak it 50 ways to 50 different people so to find the way that reaches the most people is like it's actually a really interesting nut to crack for me as well it's not just uh Oh, albums don't sell, I guess I'll teach kind of thing, you know, yeah, which is yeah. you know, a lot of a lot of, you know, guys fall into. It just falls in it becomes a necessity, but I genuinely um like what I'm doing, so Yeah, awesome. Good.
0: That's brilliant. Um, how about any live playing? You've you got any of that in the horizon?
1: I haven't done any live playing um for a long time. What happened, I was I was doing a lot of working stuff, um, you know, RSLs covers gigs or the bread and yeah. butter stuff yeah uh, and as the teaching sort of took over and you know it just i realized that was my passion and that so it kind of phased out gigs until the point where i haven't been doing any gigs at all um love to do some instrumental stuff but um you know it, thankfully it seems to be improving a little bit but there was a time there where you just couldn't get arrested playing um the kind of stuff that yeah sure. that i play but um there's some great guys you know out there now that are that are you know getting 100 people to a gig or getting 150 people to a gig so it's possible you know and and maybe that's something that uh that I could get on as well once I get some new music together
0: yeah cool hey we've talked about some ibanez guitars and um various bits and pieces your boogies and things what's what's your rig like these days cuz i know there's a, a bunch of companies you've worked with and um a yep, bunch of guitars so, you so work right.
1: on. so the the um the, the kemper profiling app is like uh you know i'm not just saying this because because i'm you know kind of collaborated with the the importer um to play them but uh it's the single best piece of gear most inspiring piece of gear i I think i've put money into as a guitar player um so that that is kind of you know my my amp rig it's it's every amp really that kind of i want access to um and then guitar wise i've you know i've kind of flip-flopped a few times between uh Strats and and super strats and, and things like that. I just bought uh, a new Ibanez Premium, which is amazing. Yeah, um, it's good to have 24 frets again. Uh-huh. Um, having it, having it in 24 frets for about 12 or 14 years, so it's good to be able to. Play, it's good to, good to be able to play an F sharp again. Uh, <laughs> nice, uh, but I mean, I guess I've always been attracted to the guitars that uh, kind of have, you know. A fatness, but a chime to them as well. So yeah. I, I've never, no offense to anybody who loves them, but I've never been a Les Paul guy. Mm-hmm. Um, closest I've come to that is the, the PRS kind of sound, but that's still a brighter sounding instrument. So I've sort of always liked kind of the slinky sounding, you know, but but hopefully not too shrill sounding kind of instruments
0: nice there's a question I ask a lot and mainly because I have a hard time with it I think I spoke with this to uh, Greg Mara most recently but if you're playing an Ibanez um, that prestige you've got it's like an RG kind of a kind of a vibe how do you go jumping from that back to one of your scallop fretboard strats Um, I'm I'm mainly thinking about the neck
1: I kind of I've I've done it for 25 years that's the thing so I, I guess I've I do it the way i've always been doing it just um just have a little bit of adjustment period maybe and then you know back to it and i first um you know similar to to Yngwie's, um story with scalping guitars i didn't even know what it was going to do the first time i scalped the guitar i just thought it looked awesome so um <laughs> so, so i did it and and then i actually realized that it's you know for the string grip and the bending vibrato and stuff like that uh-huh. so um But the guitar that I had that on, that I first did it on, I only did it from the seventh fret up. So I still had, you know, half or a third of a fretboard kind of flat, and then the other half, the other two thirds scalloped. So even from the beginning, I kind of had both worlds under my fingers. And then, as I was fortunate enough to be able to accumulate, um, you know, other guitars, some would be scalloped and some wouldn't. And I, 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 it actually brings out a different thing for me. So it's not like I try to play the same way on, on each instrument. If, yeah, I, if cool. I was going to play the same all the time, I'd only have one guitar. Sure. Um, yeah. So actually, part of the thing I like about about new guitars is is what they actually bring out in me, rather than well, it's part what I bring out in them as well. But it's it, for me, it's a fresh you know perspective. So i you know, and plus with the teaching, I'm kind of teaching. You know, I could do one lesson on a flat guitar, one on a scallop, and I'm kind of switching so often that. I never even think about having to to adjust anymore.
0: Okay, cool, awesome. How about pedals? I know you used some Wampler and effects pedals. Does has the Kemper replaced that kind of thing, or are you still?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I love I've loved what what Wampler do. I um still stand by their 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 pedals. Has been great um uh, pedals, but I I guess I stopped using pedals the same time I stopped using um my last um, valve head. Okay, um, which was which was another Mesa amp that was an Electro dime which was really nice mm-hmm. uh, amp. And I was using pedals with that. i had half a dozen Wamplers and some TC Electronic and uh, a couple other things there. But uh, and, I, and I like that setup too. But uh, you know, especially when I'm making instructional packs or um, you know Instagram videos or you know or actually playing on somebody's tracks, tracks, um, the camper just makes up. You know, makes it so easy to just do what I'm doing. All in the box straight into the computer you know at any time sure. of day or night so so that's my preferred way of doing things now yeah it's just a convenience to it that's just oh, worth sure. every dollar
0: yeah that's great um, are there any particular models um, you're running in the Kemper
1: the most common one I use is, is a, a Marshall 1987 X um, profile which is um, kind of like the '70s Mark II kind of sound. Okay, yeah, um, cool. And I got that from a company called the Amp Factory that just do profiles for the, for the Kemper. There's a lot of companies doing aftermarket profiles with, with you know preamps and and mics that, that I don't have access to. So it's, sure. you know there's some good profiles out there. But the funny thing is, I, I I tend to use the Kemper almost like a real amp. I almost always have that sound on there, and I turn I turn the gain down or I turn the gain up or I switch guitars and play with the treble knob or you yeah. know I, I kind of I just do all that and a lot of the time I'll do a video for Facebook or whatever and you know some, some of the followers will say man what sound was that <laughs> and I almost feel, I, I almost feel stupid saying the same sound the, the last hundred years <laughs> I did but that's almost what it is and then every now and then I'll just um, you know delve into another amp and then maybe play only that one for a few weeks or whatever but it's mostly the kind of the hot rod plexi sounding stuff
0: sure excellent well man it sounds big whatever you're plugging into it's great thanks so Chris what's the best way for people to keep um, up to date with all all your happenings
1: Um, well social media is all buzz at the moment so um, Facebook Instagram seem to be my biggest two Yeah. the Facebook I think is Chris Books Guitar and the Instagram ID is Chris Books with two zeros instead of O's Um, it was the only way I could get my name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Excellent. And you do, Um. and I can say, yeah, you're regularly posting heaps of really cool things. Sometimes it's just you jamming away, which is fun to listen to anyway. Um, or it might be a little lick, like you haven't put up a lick of the day. And
1: uh, Yeah, I've tried, tried to start doing these because now you can do 60 second videos on uh, Instagram. So I, I try my best to teach a whole thing in one minute. So I call this series Minute Licks where I just um rattle off um. You know, as much as I can about a lick in one minute. And if it needs additional info, then um, people can go to chrisbrooks.com forward slash free lessons. And I usually put the tabs up there as well oh, cool. um, with some additional notes.
0: That's great. Fantastic. Yep. 60 minute, oh, sorry, 60 seconds to check out the lick yep. and three months to get close. <laughs> a lot of practice.
1: Yeah, man, it's funny because to do one of those 60 second licks, it might take me 20 minutes because <laughs> I keep looking at I keep, I keep waffling and I go, it might take me five or or ten goes sometimes just to <laughs> to get that down in one minute. I've I've taken to starting to edit the videos down now. you. Okay. Just so, because sometimes I just want to keep talking and it goes longer than one minute.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Well, cool. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for um, joining us today. Really great to hear more of your story and um, yeah, of the great things you're doing. And um, yeah, I love your albums and and your teaching stuff. Thank excellent. you so much. So keep it up. I we'll appreciate. Keep... Oh, our pleasure. And we'll uh, keep following. Um, Your stuff with great, great interest.
1: Awesome. Cheers, Matt. All
0: right, there's my conversation with Chris Brooks. It was great to meet him and find out more about his story, more about his guitar journey. Fantastic. So, um, definitely check out his stuff at ChrisBrooks.com um, and also GuitarLickStore.com. those lessons he does do some individual tuition here in sydney if you're lucky enough to live nearby Um, so again the website's the best place to inquire about that all right thank you for joining me for another episode of the guitar speak podcast if you're enjoying the episodes please uh feel free to share them around or give them a like or whatever on on our social media that really um helps us get the word out and we really appreciate that Alright, we are out of here. We'll catch you next time. My name's Matt Wakeling and this is the Guitar Speak Podcast. Bye now.